Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Rachel Cohn. Some of you may have the source sheet, some of you may not. Um, we, we will be focusing on the daughters of Slovchad uh, tonight in our in our learning and people, you know, some people may be familiar with them. Some people may not. Hopefully what we're going over won't be too um, too much repetition for those who are familiar with with their their story in general already. But um, <clears throat> I want to look at them as um, I want to look at the story unto itself, but I also want to draw out from their story larger principles about what it can mean to fight for whatever kinds of justice and social change one would hope to see in the world. So before we get into their story in particular, if you have the source sheet, um, you'll notice at the top, I put a series of statements for us to kind of gauge our own, um, where where we might fall in relation to how the daughters of Slovchad approached their their issue that they wanted to change in their in their social context. So I'll read them out loud because I imagine not everyone has the sheet. And the idea is to kind of at the end, I'll just ask you if any of them resonate for you, if any of them rub you the wrong way um, or anything in between. <clears throat> so which, if any, best describes your approach to social change or justice work? Change is slow. Sometimes the system is so flawed that you have to dismantle it and start over. It is best to partner with authority figures. Grassroots change is best. Change works best by working within the system. Any of those statements happen to to resonate for y'all tonight? Uh, Yeah, is that Gary or Marlies? Someone's hand. It's the Gary. Um, No, I just, change takes time. Mm -hmm. If you speed it up too quickly, there can be problems. You don't Mm -hmm. think things through. That's that's what I'm happening. Great. Anyone else want to chime in? Joanna? Um, so I agree with what Gary said, that change takes time. I happen to have sent Rabbi Chorney an email during the week that when the new tune for Nahisha Amda came out, I was enthralled with it. Um, and I learned it from my son who was in Israel at the time, but I was still here in North America and it had it kind of traveled the shores. And I tried to like bring it to my next Seder and there almost was a revolt. Now it's a pretty common tune. It's pretty well known. It's sung at lots of Seders. I've sung it at my Seder with no problem. I've been to other Seders. Everybody loves to sing that tune. But it's just one example. On a more serious note, I think that, uh, you know, and such an innocuous example, think of, you know, when we're trying to make more dramatic change, um, I sort of think for me, there's like sort of three statements that you just said that need to be combined to to make change. One is that I do think that you need to sort of try, if at all possible, unless the system is so completely broken, but like to work within the system. A system is in place for a reason. And if the system overall has stood the test of time, then it probably can in some way accommodate change. And I think there needs to be a meeting of the minds between whoever's considered the authority and whoever's considered the grassroots. Because if it's all authority, you won't get buy-in from the people. And if it's all people without a structure leading the change, it, you know, it won't happen in, you know, sort of an organized and systematic way. And 
you know, could lead to chaos. So I think there, for me, there has to be sort of a meeting of the minds of those three things. So beautiful. Joanna, so nicely, you know, wove together several different threads of this. <coughs> um, speaking to both um, the, you know, like the desire for there to be lasting change that often require, you know, like requires working within the, the structures when possible. Um, I also have, I, I love the example that you brought in the, the first one, because it's like, whether change that we're looking for is so seemingly, you know, innocuous or really like deeply embedded in, in our identities is like often, often the seemingly innocuous things are also deeply embedded in our identities and, you know, like human nature for better, or for worse, like is often the same and how people respond is often the same. So it's just, it's just, I find that just a fascinating thing about humans. Uh, Cantor Chorney. A lot of these um, statements resonate with me. I um, I'm not surprised that Gary would answer that slow change resonates with him because I see his work and Marlies's as well in one LA at Betham. And I know that they agree with this idea that just diplomacy is this thing that just takes an enormous amount of time, you know, that this, this work of social change means working to build relationships within the system that just takes so much time to eventually make progress. The additional point I wanted to make is that, um, I think that my responses to this are colored by the amount of power that I feel that I hold in the system. I know that my comment now is also colored by knowing that you're about to speak about the daughters of Tzlovchad, but I think that that's also important. So I, I am moved to be the kind of person who almost always wants to keep the system intact and would like to work with authority figures uh, and to work and b- to build bridges across aisles to change the system. But I acknowledge that I rarely experience the kind of disempowerment that moves me to want to completely break down walls. And I have sometimes been in conversation with other community partners who've explained to me what it is that moves them to want to break down the system. And I understand that their perspective is pretty different from mine. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that because it it often requires a certain amount of trust in, in the system that we will not be entirely alienated and shut down from it. Even if progress is slow, there has to be some amount of hope that, that we will be, acknowledged as human beings in that, in that process. And, and it's absolutely correct that not, you know, for various reasons, that's not everyone's experience. <clears throat> so thank you. For, thank you for um, adding that layer to our discussion. Uh, Tybel? Um, two things. Uh, one is a little off topic, but I hope it's okay. Um, I go to shul for many reasons. One is tuna fish. So the notion that this normally has tuna fish and I'm in Maryland. And even when you go back, it's just going to be really hard, even if it's hybrid to watch you eating tuna fish, but I'll cope. But what makes it easier is one of the other reasons why I go to shul. I mean, I go for many reasons is to watch babies and toddlers. And there was a very cute toddler, I think, maybe slightly older at the Bima often today in what I think is the main sanctuary. So I just wanted to say that publicly first and then say um, the thing about that sometimes the only way to make change is to take it take the system down completely 
granted, I'm near the end, I'm near the end of my life from the beginning of the life. But to me, that seems like this really naive notion that human nature will change. Hmm. I mean, that human nature can be changed. It's just structural. It's just a system. It's something. It just seems like a very young thing to say. Hmm. <clears throat> Not young in the good way that the little girl, while well, her daddy was leading, that was just so cute. <laughs> that's, a, that's my son, Yossi. No, I thought it was a little. It, are you waiting for an up Sharon? Yes. <laughs> yes, I, we did an up Sharon too. He's, he turns he turns three in July, July twenty third. We're and it's going to kill me to cut those curls, though. You you see them, uh, but I'm glad that it brought you joy to have him at the Bema. I didn't get to see him up there, but I heard he was. Uh, I heard oh, he was, you were on the field. Oh, he was, was so cute. Field, but I heard he was up at the Bema. Yeah. My cute toddler is sleeping, but. <laughs> um, in any case, um. Yes. Like I, what I hear you saying is that, that, <clears throat> that there's like an element of um, perhaps naivete if one is looking to dismantle an entire system that, you know, that there is something even better to replace it with perhaps at all. Um, okay. So without, <clears throat> you know, we could, there's so many contemporary examples of, you know, when the discussions of policing in America, for instance, that's like on my mind right now without, you know, we could talk for the whole time about our, our own personal views on that, which, which we won't for the moment, but I'm just saying, I, I, <clears throat> when I'm thinking about Benot Slovchad, the daughters of Slovchad, and these principles we've discussed, you know, like it's, it's, I really see it as not theoretical. And so that's part of why I hope we can draw some, some inspiration from their, their methodology, um, whether it's our preferred way of doing things or not to see what, um, what value it, it, can hold for us today as well. Um, all right, so let's jump into looking at looking at their story. If you're following along in a Humash, we're starting in um, the book of Numbers by Midbar, chapter 27, verse 1, starting right there. Um, and um, I will, um, I'll read for now and, and kind of just pause, feel free to interrupt at any point with questions, thoughts, comments, etc. Uh, okay, so the daughters of Tzlovchad, of uh, a Manasite family, son of Haifer, son of uh, Gilad, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Yosef, um, came forward. So we have like their family lineage, and it says that these, these daughters came forward. The names of the daughters were Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirza. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the chieftains, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's faction, which banded together against the Lord, but died of his own sin. And he has left no sons. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. So they're about to be distributing land along tribal lines, essentially. And um, most of the, you know, the inheritance generally went through um, you know, like a father's lineage. So it would be passed from father to son and other male relatives. So these, these daughters are in a unique situation where they're saying, um, our father died. He wasn't, he wasn't part of those Korach, um, you know, troublemakers. 
Um, <clears throat> he died of his his own sins, kind of, you know, big. There's lots of commentary about that. But um, point being, he died. He wasn't he wasn't a Korach follower and he doesn't have any sons. So we don't want his name to be his his lineage and his name to die out with him. Um, so please give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. Like when you're distributing the allotments for his his tribe and his clan, please include us at, you know, presumably as you would if we were um, sons instead of daughters. <clears throat> so my first question upon reading this is, you know, obviously it's very it's it takes some chutzpah, some some guts. They're very brave to bring this forward. But I'm curious in how in how you're reading it. Um whether from what's actually on the page or kind of how you imagine the situation would be. Do you think their goal is just to bring their own personal case or do you think they're trying to make broader institutional change? I think a person, this is my negative side, but I, I think they're being, they're being greedy or not, not negative. They want their, their share of the, of their, of the estate and that's how they live and that's how they're going to be surviving as well. They don't have, there's nobody taking care of them per se, you know? So I think they needed to have, they want um, some, some part of, of, of his share. And because mm-hmm. they're using the word in a name, ideally they're going to get married as well too and lose that name. But, but that's the separate issue. But I think it's a, they want the way that this is known as his father's property and they're going to get a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, there's a practical concern and they are looking to help their situation. <clears throat> um, okay. Great. Uh, yeah. Marlies. Um, I guess I'm just not sure if I read this in there, but it seems to me there's some uh, feeling of, of wanting some justice, you know, for what is right, just in, in the way it's presented. And um, that's what I imagine. And the fact that they, as well as, um, you know, thinking about their father and their family, um, that, that his name not be lost and that it, um, you know, that they get, you know, I mean, yeah, yes, there is definitely their own thinking of their own well-being for, because if it just is no longer, if they're, you know, dependent on somebody else outside of the family, it may not go as well for them. Um, um, but even, if, you know, if he had had sons, presume that perhaps the son would would be thinking about his sister's well-being as well. So I'm just anyway, thinking that there's justice and um you know, wanting, wanting their father's name to be carried on. Right. So the part of it is also beyond, <clears throat> beyond themselves, um, beyond their current practical um, concern. So yes, I think that's definitely in there. And also, I mean, if you, it, you know, it's, it's, it's dramatic, you know, they're saying like they were speaking before Moses, Eleazar the priest and the chieftains and the whole assembly. Like if it had really been just, we had, you know, we need to make sure we have food and da, 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 you know, like they maybe could have had a smaller ask. So it, it is, um, there does seem to be like a principle that they're fighting for. Okay, great. Joanna? Um, two things. One is, it sort of fascinates me that like, from the giving of the Ten Commandments until this point in the Torah, like we've had almost two books worth of Torah laws, many of which anticipate situations that could not possibly have been lived in the desert, right? Like, so they were like laws, for future times, laws of like, let's think of things that may come up in the future and what will be the law to deal with them. And this doesn't come up, right? So it's sort of fascinating, like what does get into the corpus up until this time and that no one anticipated that, hey, you know, a dad could have 
only daughters and what's going to happen to the land then. Um, the other thing I think of in terms of like, how does change come or how do changes to laws come <clears throat> is when it's personal, like it has to be personable and relatable. So that happens, I think, in one of two ways, either like in this scenario, because it's very personal, it's happening to them or Someone else learns of a situation, but in order to like connect to it, you have to find that connection point, that way in which it's personal to you. I think that's a lot of the reason, for example, that in our tradition, so much is about, you know, remember you were slaves in Egypt, remember you were once a stranger in a strange land, because then that becomes a connection point for us to connect to other things. You know, so similarly here, so I think it, you know, at one and the same time, it could be both, you know, it's personal. And now that this personal thing has come up, it makes us realize that change, you know, systematic change is needed across the system for everyone, not just for this one family. Right. They were, they were doing the personal is political. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Much better on system. <laughs> No, no, it's all good, you know, which is like, you know, a principle that people didn't start writing about for much, much longer after the Torah was written. But I think I think it's it's in there and in, in what they're doing. OK, uh, great. Tybal. I'm I'm going to disagree a little bit because I don't think this could mean what it says on the face. OK, they didn't have later. they didn't have surnames no matter what they did. Married, not married, they were always going to be whoever they were, Terza, daughter of Zalofafa. Mm-hmm. They marry, their name doesn't change. Same thing was true for men. That's way, that's still the way we do religious names. Mm-hmm. We know it was done that way even earlier in the Torah. So when it says his name will be lost, that can't, that can't be it because the mm-hmm. reality is, even if it were an only male line by the grandson, it's not caring. It's let me do this. It's um, Jacob, the son of Isaac. It's not the the name of Abraham is gone already. So when it says the thing about his name will be lost, it mm-hmm. can't mean it can't be the shot. It's got to be something else because the only time when it might be slightly different, but it would be from birth is if there was a leveret marriage thing. I mean, which doesn't apply here, but the only time you weren't the son or daughter of the first name of your parents and that changed under generation. So Mm -hmm. I, I I just think it, the name it's, it's not the Shem. It's maybe the, the, the standing somehow Mm -hmm. the, the authority authority's the wrong word. But just that here was someone with a lot of children who happened to those female children, the memory of who he was, particularly since he was this righteous person who didn't rebel, how to keep that memory alive. And maybe that was eventually going to have something to do with land where when people pass through the land, but not completely because the lands were going to revert always back to the tribe in the sabbatical is why they get limited who they can marry anyway. But it was just (laughs) a point about... I don't think, I think we read it differently because we're used to in our Western notion mm-hmm. that surnames might change. <clears throat> this change. doesn't apply. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. The name can be a broader concept about standing power, many different things. Okay, great. Joanna, and then we'll, um, and then we'll go to the next source. I think name here can be a little bit of a, 
not literally the name, but like a broader meaning that we use even today of like legacy, right? Mm -hmm. So legacy is so tied in. And I think we know like, like I'm thinking about now like the book of Ruth. And I feel like in that story, name, land, inheritance, legacy is all one very interconnected idea. Absolutely. Um, yeah, great, great point. I think for sure, you know, building on, on Tybal's, um, <clears throat> Tybal's point there. Um, so, so let's, let's go on to see how this, this grievance that they've brought is addressed by, um, by Moses and then, and then others. So this is one of the cases in the Torah where we, where it says Mo, uh, Moshe brought the case before God. <clears throat> like Moses, you know, was like, don't know, gotta consult my manager. Um, and there's, there's many different commentaries about why Moshe had to go to Hashem at all. So some people say like he hadn't learned that law. Some people say he for, had learned it, but had a, you know, like just slipped his mind in that moment and forgot it. Um, but this, this Midrashic commentary that I, that I brought, I think speaks to, Alongside what was happening with Moshe, it gives us some of the backstory about that kind of how they worked through and with the system to try and achieve, um, try and achieve their goal. So <clears throat> we read, and this is um, the midrash under section number two. If you're on the source sheet, a midrashic approach: the daughters of Slovchad did not approach Moses, the high priest, and the elders in the first instance but had approached judges of lesser stature in order to give them due respect. The various levels of judges, and so then it names like the chiefs who were in charge of 50 people and then the chiefs who were in charge of 100 people, the kind of, if you think about like different, different layers of the court system today, kind of similar to that. Um, each of them displayed respect to the higher levels and saying, oh, you know, I'm going to kind of defer to my superior. I'm going to kind of defer to my superior <clears throat> and so on progressively through the judiciary system. Moshe saw how these others responded and accordingly granted respect to God for a ruling. So he kind of saw how how each of the the prior judges had passed this case up to a superior. And so he said, oh, you know, I, I should consult my superior also. And that is why he <clears throat> he went to God. This is the reason that we read um, uh, by a creed Moshe at Mishpatan with Hashem. Moses brought their case before God. So. <clears throat> um, well, I mean, what I think is fascinating there is that in addition to what we read in that opening section about, you know, they brought their case before all these people, it seems like actually before that moment, they actually, they worked through every possible layer of the system. They started with, you know, they were, they were trying to cross all their T's and dot all their I's. It seems like do everything really by the book of like how, how judicial matters would be, would be handled. And that before it got to that kind of dramatic point we read in the opening where they're they're like speaking to everyone that they they went through the different levels. So, you know, if it already seemed like they <clears throat> were kind of playing by playing by the rules to change the rules, then um, I think that for me, this this kind of like leveled up the impression about them doing that because they 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 went through a long, tedious process, you know. The red, they worked through the bureaucracy, the red tape, and they were, they were willing to do that to get what they were looking for. And to kind of go back to Cantor Torney's point, you know, that, <clears throat> that must have required some 
some amount of sense of power, perhaps in, you know, working through the system for them to trust that they were going to keep pushing to have their case go through these, you know, five, six different levels of, of review before they got a final um, verdict. Any other, <clears throat> any other thoughts, questions about that, that one, one take on the Midrashic backstory? Okay, great. So we'll go on to what I have as source three here. The actual ruling after after this consultation with Moses's superior, in other words, God, um, God said to Moses, the plea of <clears throat> the daughters of Sofchad is just. You should give them a hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen, transfer their father's share to them. So this verse I pointed out on the source sheet has an interesting thing where there's like a lack of clarity in the genders when when they're saying <clears throat> when God is saying them, meaning the daughters, where in one point it says lahem, which is masculine. And another point it says avihen, their father, which is feminine. And, you know, most likely it's like editorial mistake. There's different ways you could interpret this. What I thought what was interesting and my kind of drosh on this experience was like, you know, there's debate amongst different strands of feminism, let's say, about like how much are people trying to work their way like into the successes of the patriarchy versus dismantle it. Like how much were they trying to be like, get the same rights as men? How much were they trying to like appear as men in order to get what they wanted versus being strong women to achieve the goal, like the goals of women. Um, Just kind of like a, a side note that I don't think is necessarily in the story even, but I think because the language is interesting, I kind of, that's, <clears throat> that's just where my, uh, my mind was going with that. Cause there's a couple times in this story where the language is, is not clear. Like I, almost as if when Moses is, or God is talking about the case, they don't even always have feminine language to describe like what's going on because it hasn't, there isn't really a precedent for it. Uh, okay. So, that ruling seems very clear about what what God wants to happen in their case. What I think is less clear, at least from the shot, which is why we, you know, kind of start going to commentary, is how much did this change extend beyond their specific case? And, um, you know, how much was it about specifically what should the benote, you know, the daughters of Slovchad get versus like what happens in general if, if somebody doesn't have to inherit their their property. <clears throat> so what we get from the Peshat is this, Memoria Numbers 27, verse 8, or source 4 on the source sheet. Further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a man dies without leaving a son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall assign his property to his brothers. If his father had no brothers, you shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan, and he shall inherit it. This shall be the law of procedure for the Israelites in accordance with God's command to Moses. So God kind of adds an addendum saying, in addition to what I've just told you about how to handle their case, um, you know, here are these broader principles, like where <clears throat> this inspired an amendment to the Constitution, you could say, because we saw there was something left out. <clears throat> so already we see it kind of extends beyond their case somewhat. And then um, there's a piece by Ramban that I think, in his view, it would expand it even more. Um, so Ramban adds, this shall be the law of procedure for the Israelites, meaning this is the judgment that shall be for all future generations, and not only for now when they were inheriting the land of Israel. So <clears throat> Ramban is making sure to clarify 
this is taking place in the context of, you know, what's happening when they, um, when they arrive in, in Canaan and what it, are the tribal holdings supposed to be. And Ramban clarifying, he's like, no, no. So just, just in case you, you weren't sure how to, you know, like we run into this all the time with how different people interpret what, what the founding fathers meant by specific words, you know, Ramban is sort of saying, just in case you thought God's explanation meant this is how you should handle things when you're assigning tribal property, you know, when you're entering the land of Israel, Ramban is saying, no, 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 it's, it's how it's not only that it's for all future generations as well. So Ramban, I think is, is making it an even more expansive case for saying we're changing how inheritance works along gender lines and we're making more room for for um for someone with only daughters to have their um inheritance be passed down to um to them um any thoughts questions comments before we kind of zoom back out to our our opening principles okay so so we've seen that the model in general of the daughters of Sochad is one of trying to change the system from <clears throat> from within. They certainly partner with authority figures of Moshe and and according to the midrash, we read other you know other chieftains along the way as well. Um, and they, you know, what they end up achieving is is a measure of success for what they are looking for. And different interpretations of how much that applied to you know people beyond them as well. So I'd like to kind of, just for closing, um, you know, go back to those opening statements if you, if you have them, or I can kind of remind you of them. Um, the statements like change is slow. Sometimes the system is so flawed, you have to dismantle it entirely. Um, it is best to partner with authority figures. Grassroots change is best. Change works best by working within the system. Do you think there are any of those that the daughters of Slovchad, like if you could interview them after this experience, what what do you think their philosophy um, would have been? Marlies? Um, well, it certainly seems like they're working within the system. I don't know if I would say they actually, oh, I lost, sorry, I didn't mean to take off. Um, I don't know that they were partnering with authority figures so much as, you know, going to going to the authority figures mm-hmm. and asking, requesting, um, but um, not necessarily as full partners. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, but certainly they respected the authority figures and they were trying to work within the system. Mm-hmm. Any any other reads on on their situation mm-hmm. or what they might have been thinking? Do you think they were successful? Like, were they, would they have been happy with the outcome? Joanna, sorry, I asked two different questions. Respond to whatever you want. <laughs> um, so just a little bit broader on my take on this whole thing. I'm fascinated yeah. when it's referred to, when they say to coach hate, right? Like when it's referred to that they, it's not just like Cain, you know, so go ahead and do this, but the word, you know, to use the word tzedek there, that they were, it's not just that they were asking the right question, they were righteous in what they were doing. Um, and, um, and, and I think that there's like a big clue there is, you know, do you come out of resentment and anger or do you come from a righteous place in terms of, you know, wanting to make change? Um, 
you know, it reminds me a little bit, I mean, it's a little bit different, the context, but like when we talk about, you know, having arguments over Torah, do we do them, um, you know, the way Hillel did, or, you know, going back to last week's Parsha, do we do them the way Korach did, right? Like, are we doing it the shame Shemayim for us with good intent and goodwill, you know, from the outside? And, you know, so there was something very um, righteous about that I, I, I would argue not only the question, but their approach to their question that, um, you know, allowed the question to be pursued and responded to the way right. yeah. that it was. And I think there's, you know, there's a big clue there about, you know, how to go about Right. And, and just to say one more thing about it, the, the other thing that just jumped into my mind is the verse that we're going to get to towards the end of the Torah, right? Tzedek, tzedek, to your joke, right? It's not like stand by and wait for it to happen. It's pursue it, run after it. Um, and I think that there's also something to that. Like, don't just sit back passionately and wait for it to happen. You've got to actively, you know, it's active justice, Right, right. That they were, they were also, they were modeling that. And, and you bring in the very important element of intent, that it's not only the steps that you would choose to, it's not just what you're doing, but also how you do it. And I think that's such a, a you know, a beautiful, like, we'll kind of draw to a close there of that the, the spiritual piece of not only what are you doing to pursue justice, but how internally and hopefully also externally are you exuding a sense of like we're working for the a cause of justice and and not you know not only not only anger perhaps though that may be um motivating and in the mix in the mix as well um so i i hope that when we think about different torah paradigms for pursuing justice that this will be you know along with the the um the midwives in Exodus who defied Pharaoh and other people who stood up to each other and Machlokat Lashem Shemaim that the that the daughters of Slovchad will will be for you one of the models you can hold as a a Torah a Jewish way of going about pursuing um, pursuing justice. Tybal, quick quick closing thoughts. Quick please. one and and just to remember that it's in Bamidbar where Moses is referred to as a nursing father for the people. It's elsewhere in Tanakh, but in Torah, it's in Bamidbar, which is something interesting to think about in terms of women, men, gender roles. Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's, there's feminist possibilities in, in, there, in there for sure. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.